1: You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. And this week we are talking about terrorism. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today. Hey, Mark, how's it going?
0: Hey, and I'm Mark Galley, editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. Things are going really well.
1: We had a staff retreat earlier this week.
0: We had a staff retreat. It was great. At the end of the staff retreat, I went up to Milwaukee and watched the Brewers and the Giants play. And had better luck than my co-host here, who every time she watches the Giants, they lose.
1: <laughs> but they won
0: the other night, 7-2 to two in a handy fashion.
1: Mark has agreed to go to the rest of the Milwaukee series for me. That's how much he cares about it. Also, the best part of this retreat, though, is that there's been snacks in the office all week.
0: Exactly. Our, our administrative assistant bought way too much food, which was a good thing.
1: Right. All right. So who's joining us today?
0: Joining us today is Tremper Longman III. He is the Robert H. Gundry Professor of Biblical Studies at Westmont College, at least for a little while longer before he retires and goes off to the other side of the country to spend more time with his grandchildren. He has uh, authored or co-authored over 30 books, including... Cry of the Soul, which is a co-author, and A Biblical History of Israel, a co-author, but also How to Read the Psalms, all of which will come into play in our conversation this morning. Welcome, Tremper.
2: Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Morgan. Good to be with you. And uh, I should point out that in terms of my retirement, I'm planning to stay active as a teacher and writer and editor and things like that. But I'm also going to hang out with my beautiful granddaughters.
0: Sounds like a win-win.
1: So, Tremper, is there going to be a, a Tremper Longman the <laughs> Fifth? Well,
2: uh, let me put it this way, Tremper Longman the Fourth, uh, when he had when they had their first child turned to me and said, Dad, we're not having a fifth. It's getting ridiculous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds like a dynasty then.
2: <laughs> and then he up, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the whole thing is a tweak of the British monarchy. You know, only Americans do this and the British laugh at us but they don't understand we're tweaking their monarchy. Yeah,
0: exactly. But, uh, We're envious.
2: You know, Democrat, Democratic naming.
1: <laughs> well, Tremper the V would be amazing, though.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to become a middle name again. It was a middle name for two or three generations before it was a first name.
1: Interesting. Well, it's a cool name. Thanks. Thank
2: you. Everybody thinks I'm an old German, even when I was a young American. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's get into the discussion at hand today. Last Saturday... Three men killed seven people and wounded 48 others in London. Less than two weeks after, a suicide bomber blew himself up, along with more than 20 others, at an Aria Grande concert in Manchester. These attackers drove a vehicle into a crowd on London Bridge before exiting the vehicle and stabbing bystanders. Meanwhile... The same week, in Afghanistan, a truck bombing killed 150 people in Kabul. These headlines come at a time when terrorism seems to be constantly in the news. Since 2015, Germany, the UK, France, and Belgium have together experienced seven terror attacks. In our own country, later this month, we will be commemorating the one-year anniversary of the Pulse nightclub attacks where a gunman killed 49 people in Orlando. Despite the rise of headlines about terrorism in recent years, these attacks on civilians aren't new. In fact, we can find references to these types of atrocities throughout the Old Testament. What's more, they're often wrestled with at a visceral level in the book of Psalms. As we Christians struggle to make sense of these realities, we'd like to see what we can learn about reacting to horror from the Old Testament. So, before we get into some of the larger theological questions that we'd like to discuss with Tremper, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today, our magazine. Thank you everyone so much for doing so. And I know we've talked a lot about how this month the cover story is about Cambodia, but this week is the week that we are promoting those articles on our site. And, you know, as I just kind of relayed with these headlines, there's been so much discouraging um, really intense news that's been in the media and potentially there's not anything more encouraging than kind of reading about the long-term works that it really takes to kind of change how society is going and, and what it takes to really fight evil and I, I think we got a good sense of that in a lot of this reporting that we had in Cambodia did you get that sense too Mark when yeah. you read our coverage yeah
0: problems that are this horrific are obviously have deep deep roots and need very complex solutions in order to make headway in them for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's really fascinating to watch Christians just kind of understand just how far and how deep they need to go with, you know, changing the criminal justice laws, changing the way that families understand how to take care of women in these situations or girls in this type of instance, changing education, changing how jobs go. And yet, really, Christians have played a key role in kind of changing Cambodia's social infrastructure to make it a lot harder for human trafficking to happen there. Yeah, exactly. So anyone who wants to read all of that coverage, um, whether they want to read it online or in our magazine, please go to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. And when you subscribe via this download, you will get a complimentary download with that that includes mine, Mark's, and our other CT podcast host, Richard's favorite articles from CT over the years as a thank you for subscribing. So again, that's orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Mark, we're going to talk about our gut check now. I know we've had gut checks for other kind of like horrible things that have happened, but I do wanted to know what your kind of gut check was when you heard about this attack on London Bridge this weekend.
0: Well, of course, uh, deeply saddened. um, But Intellectually, it aroused my curiosity as being the second attack in just a short period of time, how the British were going to respond to this. Uh, one expects to see the extreme views of let's calm down. It's, these are it's only a few people and we mustn't mm-hmm. think badly about Muslims. And the other extreme of let's go out and you know deport every Muslim in the country. I'm just wondering how that conversation will go and how Britain's going to respond to this. I think it'll be very interesting.
1: And they're also having elections this week, in fact, by the time people listen to this podcast, they'll probably the polls will probably have be close to closing in the UK, and so that makes it especially interesting time. All I know is that I, I feel actually pretty similar to how I felt at this time last year, where I just feel very like emotionally exhausted and spent. And um, we have NPR on. That's on in my house pretty much 24 hours. And I was just was lying in bed listening to the UK talk about this and being like, I can't believe this is how ha- we're talking about this again. And just, you know, as someone who lives in a city, you know, I was in my head, I was replacing London Bridge with like Millennium Park or yeah. something else that feels very just like iconic and familiar to to your city, and thinking about all the people that are just out and about doing their thing, which is kind of the point of terrorism. So Tremper, I'm just wondering. If you, we can talk about what type of trauma and horror are the authors of the Book of Psalms dealing with?
2: Well, it really runs the gamut. The ancient world was filled with violence and fear of warfare and famine and plague. And as I say, the, the whole gamut of things that can be said of society. And so probably one of the biggest issues within the Psalms is warfare and the threat of violence from enemies. I did a study once that showed that there were 49 out of the 150 Psalms that were connected to warfare, which is a pretty significant number.
0: Yeah, that does suggest the prevalence of it in the ancient world, I would think.
2: Yeah, I mean, remember in the beginning of the David and Bathsheba story, which begins in the spring when kings go out to war, you know, and it's almost like You know, it's a regularly expected thing. And David is being implicitly criticized for not being on the battlefield with Joab at that moment.
1: You know, you just said about war being a regularly expected thing, which is kind of maybe the opposite of terrorism, right? Which seems more random and haphazard. But would you classify any of kind of the trauma that people are talking about in Psalms or violence there as being terror?
2: You know, one of the, I think, amazing aspects of the Psalms is that they keep things kind of general even though they're arising out of specific issues. And the reason why they do that is because the psalmist writing is writing in a way that allows later people to use the psalm as their prayer for similar, though not necessarily identical situations. So, you know, the violence that the enemy is bringing could be construed as violence brought through something similar to terrorism or to warfare. And we do have, you know, in Jeremiah 40 to 44, there's an interesting story right after the fall of Jerusalem, where a Jewish insurgent named Ishmael is living in the caves, and he commits a terrorist act against Governor Gedaliah, who was Jeremiah's associate, and assassinates Gedaliah and kills a lot of people, then runs off to the neighboring state of Ammon. So that's a very similar type of act of terrorism. So they did have those kind of terrorist acts.
0: And then some of the the armies practiced a kind of post-war terrorism after victory. History, I oh, understand, yeah. uh, doing some cruel things to the to the conquered people to l- let them absolutely know that
1: they had been defeated. Yeah, to the civilians, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, there's no question that that took place in the ancient world. Yeah, this is after the Old Testament time period, but a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes in the mid-2nd century BC who grew angry with the citizens of Jerusalem and crucified 5,000 of them at once. And, you know, there are all kinds of horrible violent act.
1: What type of horror is described in the Psalms? Well,
2: again, it's pretty generalized, but you have on the one hand, the psalmist talking about enemies that are coming against him and calling on God to help them against the enemy. Uh, you also have, of course, the so-called imprecations or curses of the psalm, where the psalmist is calling for violence against the enemy. They're not really imprecatory psalms. That's kind of a misclassification. There are imprecations within a certain number of lament psalms. So, there's no psalm that's totally dedicated to imprecation, but they play a role within the lament psalm.
0: What does imprecation mean specifically
2: oh it's it's like a curse, you know calling okay. a curse down, calling punishment down on the heads of their enemies and those close to them, calling on God to come and punish the enemies sometimes in language that we find deeply disturbing.
0: Yeah, my assumption is that, that that is a response to something that was done deeply disturbing to them, and there's this this desire for revenge.
2: It shows also their feeling of total lack of control and being overwhelmed by an enemy and being oppressed and at their
0: mercy. The classic example of that, of course, is the, the, the prayer that God would dash the heads of the Babylonian babies against the rocks. So one can imagine, well, first of all, that's pretty horrific to think about. But my only assumption is they are think they are responding to something horrific that happened to them. So it, it, does, it does give you a visual image of horror.
2: Oh, for sure. Yes, definitely. The one thing that I think we need to keep in mind as we think about these is that the psalmist isn't saying to God, God, give me the opportunity and give me the resources and I will kill my enemy. What he's doing is turning his anger over to God. And he's saying, you know, God, you take vengeance against my enemy. And and there's an important difference there, I think, uh, between asking for the opportunity to do it themselves and asking for God to do it. And it's, in one sense, very uh, similar to what Paul says in Romans 12:17 and following, that when he says to people to turn their anger over to God.
1: What other emotions do we see in response to this violence? besides this kind of asking God for revenge? I would talk about
2: two different types of psalms to answer that question, the Lament Psalms and the Psalms of Confidence. What you see in the Lament Psalms is, you know, fear, sometimes anger, Uh, expressed not only at the enemy, but even at God for letting them down. The one thing about the Psalms that we always have to keep in mind is that the Psalms are brutally honest with God, and they basically give us, I would argue as Christians, permission to talk to God any way that we feel. We need to be totally honest with God. And if we're angry with God, we express that to Him. Uh, This is different than what goes on, say, in the books of Exodus, and Numbers, where the Israel are grumbling about God, because in the laments, you're taking your anger, your fear to God. And as you do that, you're expressing hope that God will answer you. If you're grumbling about God or expressing your anger about God behind his back, then that shows you've given up on God.
0: That's a good point. That's a good distinction, yeah.
2: So in the Lament Psalms, you get kind of fear and anger. The Psalms of Confidence like Psalm 131, you know, um, I've stilled and quieted my soul, are expressions of trust and confidence in God, even though there is continuing threat from the enemy. Psalm 23 talks about how God has prepared a table for him in the presence of my enemies. Walter Brueggemann, who is this very prolific Old Testament scholar, very helpfully talked about hymns, which are psalms that you sing when everything is going great, psalms of orientation. Then you have uh, laments that you sing when things are going badly. They're psalms of disorientation. And then Thanksgivings are psalms of reorientation when God answers your lament. But what if God chooses not to answer our lament, and the trauma continues. Should we keep lamenting? I think God would permit that, but I think the desired outcome would be to turn to psalms of confidence, that even though life is a struggle, even though life is dangerous and we're facing constant threats, we can put our trust and confidence in God. Because as the book of Daniel teaches us, in spite of present circumstances, in spite of what it looks like out there in the world, God really is in control, and He is going to have the final victory. And that's where I think we as believers need to, you know, find our hope in a fallen, difficult, Threatening world.
1: So, should we see some of these Psalms then that may have like very visceral, vivid reactions to something traumatic that happened as models of how we should respond? Or should we see them just kind of as? A way of, you know, the Bible kind of making it okay for us to bring our feelings to God, but maybe not as a place that we should ultimately stay in. I guess what type of spiritual affirmation should these offer and what type of limits should they impose?
2: I think that the Psalms are what John Calvin called a mirror of the soul. That is, as we read them, they help us articulate and understand what's going on inside of ourselves and help us understand whether we're moving toward God or away from God as we react to the psalms. The beautiful thing, as David Hubbard put it, that there's a psalm for every season of life. So you're going to find psalms that are going to help you deal with whatever emotion you're feeling at the time, and then they'll start ministering to you, because you'll notice that these lament psalms begin in the pits, but almost always, not always, but almost always at the end, turns to some kind of positive statement of confidence or hope at the end. So I think that these psalms should be looked at as a way to help us pray. And there's nothing in the Psalms that I would say is inappropriate. Even even these curses are imprecations. I don't think they're sub-Christian, as some scholars will suggest. I don't think we should not pray them if we feel those emotions, but we should always remember that these imprecations are not resourcing us to bring revenge, but it's turning our feelings for revenge over to God.
0: Yeah, that's a good distinction. I think there would be something subhuman about us if in the face of a terrorist attack that killed innocent women and children, and if we didn't feel outrage and a desire for these people to be brought to justice summarily. Yeah, you may be right. It may not be our job at one level to bring vengeance, but it is certainly God's job to bring justice. Yes. And so for us to pray, that seems to me an appropriate and in a sense, righteous thing to do.
1: It also seems like it depends the context in that you're praying for it. It's different praying silently or with your family to call out to God about something versus praying something that feels more like a curse when you're at a church setting. Although I I will say that I, I struggle with that because sometimes I do want to hear my own anger acknowledged in a larger corporate space. It almost feels dishonest to kind of smooth over some of the anger there and kind of pray almost more from an intellectual space. When I was reading the Old Testament as a child, you know, they have these very vivid images of attire that people put on to mourn and. I remember just this idea of like people beating their breasts, and both of those actions did not really have a place. Like, I couldn't think of any like modern equivalent of those growing up of very visceral, outward, obvious ways that show that you're in pain and that you're in hurting and that something is not okay. I struggle with all of that too, you know, because I don't <laughs> want to necessarily make the case for us to bring our worst selves into these spiritual things.
0: But the Psalms are a public document, aren't they, Trevor?
1: Yeah, that's,
2: and that might encourage us to a more authentic uh, kind of worship experience, too. But its I, I agree with you, Morgan, it's difficult to navigate what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. I think one of the criticisms we could make of some modern worship is it's always wanting to put on a happy face. And be joyful when we sometimes don't feel that way. I remember going to a worship service right after 9-11 where there was no acknowledgement of the pain and and it was all, you know, happy scripture songs and it just felt wrong, you know, that we weren't expressing our pain and even our anger. I think one of the problems is as scary as what's going on now. I think we are so far removed from the type of terror that the Old Testament people experienced consistently. And again, not just from military violence or terrorism, but also from plague and famine and so forth. And that makes us uncomfortable with things like the stories of the conquest and the pictures of God as a divine warrior. I'm actually writing a book now on controversial issues in the Old Testament, which includes the issue of divine violence. And it's a difficult question, but we shouldn't approach it by trying to explain it away as sub-Christian.
0: I do notice that tendency in worship, especially when we're in a church that follows the lectionary, like an Anglican church that I attend, the habitual cutting out from the psalms the sections that are more uncomfortable uh, and more emotionally hard for the sake of this uh, the service being sometimes more of a, a pep rally to make us feel good. So I do think we'd, we'd have more honest services, that even if we just read the psalm in full, even the uncomfortable parts.
2: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection
0: of victimhood.
1: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
0: 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on and on.
1: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
0: When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home, but hey, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there.
1: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed, You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. The other thing I was going to say that makes it complicated is that we could argue in some ways that we have a more nuanced or we at least know more information about some of the terrible things that befall us. Like, we don't necessarily know the specific motivations, but we have newspaper articles that come out that are parsing through motives. We have backstories and we just have information available. And that kind of changes how we look at tragedies a lot of times and how we understand who victims are and whether we are the victim or we're the perpetrator or whether it's some sort of convoluted mess. And that can make it more complicated, I think, to to grieve.
2: Yeah. Yeah, seems right to me.
1: Well, let's talk about a topic that is in this vein which is revenge. Tremper, what does the Bible teach about revenge and is there ever a biblical case for carrying revenge out in international politics?
2: I would start by looking at that Romans 12:17 passage. Of course, it's speaking more to the church at that point. I think we have to keep that in mind as we think about these issues. For instance, my understanding of the New Testament is that as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament there's an intensification and heightening of divine warfare so that it's directed towards spiritual powers and authorities. Uh, not flesh and blood, as it says in Ephesians 6.10 and following, and 1 Corinthians 10.1 and following. But that doesn't speak to the issue of the importance, say, of the nation-state, which we also participate in as citizens using violence for defense or something like that. But I think the idea of revenge, the idea that if you you know, hurt me, I'm gonna hurt you worse would be a very unbiblical concept.
0: And that's a little different than striking back after an incident in the attempt to send a message that we will not put up with this. And if you do this again things oh, would, yeah. which is in a different category than revenge, obviously. It's more Yeah, a,
2: yeah, yeah. That's right. I'm trying to differentiate that from revenge, you know. So I think you used the category of justice earlier, self defense. And these are complicated issues on the ground, but I'm not a pacifist. I don't think the Bible encourages us toward a pacifist position, but what it does say is that violence should never be utilized for the promotion of the gospel or the church. As we live between the first and second coming of Christ, as we look back we don't disown the Old Testament violence. And as we look forward to the future judgment, you know, we shouldn't disown the idea that God is going to bring justice, which will result in the final judgment on spiritual and human evil. But on the other hand, we need to remember that in this time period, we're waging war against spiritual powers and authority.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that characterizes revenge is it is an end in itself. And that's, I think, something to be discouraged. One would hope that our national leaders would be thinking beyond that, that the, whatever action they do, it actually would help promote peace in the long run.
2: Exactly. When I think of revenge, I think of a strong emotion that just lashes out for its own self-satisfaction. I'm going to hurt you because you've hurt me. Uh, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm not a military strategist. But I think responding to incidents like this, I imagine it would be quite complex and involve a lot of different avenues. Diplomacy as well as military action, policing action, etc.
0: It is a deep desire of the human heart, though. I mean, I have to admit that I am am a fan of revenge plots in the movies. One of my favorite being Unforgiven, when Clint Eastwood goes into the saloon and just slaughters these evil people. It just leaves you with this great feeling of satisfaction at the end. Well,
2: I believe Aristotle called it catharsis, you know, that as you see this happen, you feel kind of cleansed of your own difficult emotions. I like those kind of movies as well.
1: You know, I was just thinking when we're talking about what the Bible teaches about revenge in a non-very didactic way, right? I mean, I think that the biggest example that we have of revenge playing out is with Saul chasing David. And of course, we know how David feels about that because David writes about that in Psalms and kind of the personal toll and cost that it has on his own emotional state to feel like he is being hunted and the unfair target of Saul's kind of irrational wrath. And of course, there's this very strong sense, which David tries to, he, he turns his visceral feelings about what it feels like into these Psalms and then is able to grant mercy on Saul multiple times and kind of stop the going back and forth, right, of violence. On the one hand, like, I obviously, like, applaud what David is able to do. But I totally think that we do f- have to figure out what to do with that immense amount of emotion, um, especially if the person on the other side is not going to, you know, have some sort of self-control and willpower to stop that violence.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I, again, I'm not advocating a nonviolent reaction to these violent actions. We just can't sit by and just let these terrorist acts continue. But I but I think you're right to point us to David as someone who, especially during the time period you're talking about, he illustrates that kind of restraint from personal revenge that we're talking about. And that's where Psalm 131, I think, which is a Psalm of David, you know, my heart is not proud, O Lord, my eyes are not haughty, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I've stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore and sort of articulates what goes on in those two instances where he had the opportunity to assassinate Saul but refrains from it.
1: I'm just interested, I guess, in in terms of like mercy being a tactic, right? Because one of the challenges in all of this is if everyone constantly feels aggrieved, then they're always going to feel justified in taking action that then perpetuates the trauma. And I find it interesting that David, not once but twice, he has to kind of double down and say, no, I'm actually committed. I really do not want to kill you. And it is enough to cause this type of like ceasefire and kind of prick Saul's conscience. Well,
0: it does have a way of shocking people sometimes, like we've seen in the recent story we published on how the Coptic Christians are responding to the latest terrorist attack on them by forgiving. And that even the Muslims are looking at at, the, at their behavior and saying, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does, mercy does have a power, can have a power in some of these situations, definitely.
2: And I'm not saying David was totally self-interested in this, but you could see if he had perpetuated the violence, it would have led in one direction. But by saying "Don't touch the head of the Lord's anointed," he knows he's the next Lord's <laughs> anointed, too. and so so he's trying event, to set
0: a precedent here.
2: Yeah, right. You know, I feel I think he really felt it, but it just shows you that sometimes diplomacy is wiser than, you know, revenge.
1: So we're talking about revenge right now. And that is, that also seems to imply to me, like I can carry this action out with my own hands. But when it comes to some of these terrorist attacks, I think the way that I feel is almost demoralized, right? Like even if I wanted to do so, inflict evil, which sometimes I feel like I do on the perpetrators, I actually don't feel like I can do anything At all, and so what do you say that the Psalms teach us about our own feelings of helplessness and vulnerability that we often feel after terrorist attacks?
2: So the Psalms will help us express the emotions that we're dealing with, and as we do that, I think it it um, you know it uh, it helps us to deal with those emotions, helps us express what's going Because often, I don't know about you, Morgan, but I'm often just kind of confused as to what I feel. And reading mm-hmm. through the Psalms will help me sort that out. You know, Psalm 130, you know, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, you know, let yours be attentive to my cry for mercy. I mean, this idea of just expressing our despondency and our feeling of things are beyond our control. And actually, you know, again, I'd hate to change books on you, but I think the book of Daniel is just so helpful in such a situation like this where you get six stories. About Daniel and his friends in a foreign court, then four apocalyptic visions at the end. And they all, even though they're all different, they all have the same theme speaking to God's people who are in a situation which is beyond their control, a threatening, scary one. And it is, even though it looks like things are out of control, they're really not. I am in control and I will have the final victory. It's hard to get that in our brains but I think that's why we have a book like Daniel. In Revelation 2, which is the New Testament equivalent to Daniel, says essentially the same thing. Looks like these oppressive political forces are in control, but no, God's in control. And uh, and not only that, and this is an interesting sort of sub-theme in the book of Daniel, is not only can you survive, but you can even thrive living in a toxic culture and an oppressive situation.
0: And it's one of the reasons the Psalms have been regularly recommended and have been been used, actually, in monastic communities for centuries as, a, as something to read through every—sometimes Some of sometimes people do it once a month. I go through a lectionary reading, and I have a psalm or two every morning. And yeah, frankly, some mornings, the psalmist is expressing things I have no— It doesn't connect with me whatsoever, but it is amazing the number of times it does connect. The
2: Church Fathers talked about the Book of Psalms as a literary sanctuary, where Psalms 1 and 2 are the kind of gatekeepers into the sanctuary, and then Psalms 146 to 150 are the the great doxology as you're leaving this literary sanctuary. And as you move from the beginning to the end, you move from a predominance of laments to a predominance of hymns, and it's kind of like you go in weeping and you come out So the exercise of reading through the Psalms from 1 to 150, even though I don't think it has any kind of systematic order, does have a kind of a effect of moving you toward God and to praise of God. And while we're talking about David, you know, we should remember David's greater son, whom I believe every psalm ultimately points to in some way. And in my I wrote a Psalms commentary in the Tyndale Old Testament series where I give a Christological interpretation of all the Psalms. And with this one it just draws my attention to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus says the God, take this cup away from me. And then at the end says, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. And of course, horrible atrocities were perpetrated against our Lord, and it took him to the cross. And the divine response is the resurrection. So I think the Psalms should take us to Jesus.
1: Just to wrap up this conversation, Christians can, in the end, can believe that justice will be brought against perpetrators of terror. However, um, that is not necessarily going to be the belief among people who are not Christians. What is the best way that you think that we should alleviate or attempt to alleviate fear and bring hope to our neighbors and friends and family who don't believe in the God that we do?
2: So I would say that it would be to introduce them to the God that we know and and I I'm not sure there there is a lot of comfort and encouragement outside the Gospel. Often, it's these feelings of threat and danger that lead people to Christ.
0: I would think also just being an, uh, a non-anxious presence among them is—is is it of itself both a calming influence and a? It might lead them to ask, "How can you? How can you not be so anxious in this situation?" Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. I just get so worried that. Christians themselves get so wrought up and publicly anxious and urgent and on not just this topic, but on a lot of topics and, you know, kind of uh, radiate uh, the wrong message out there through our actions and and talk.
1: Well, thank you for the good discussion, everybody. We invite all of our listeners to give feedback on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. This is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share with our listeners something that's bringing them joy this week, and also if they can be found on social media or if they have a plug for someplace else so they'd like people to follow. Tremper, do you want to go ahead?
2: Yeah, I'm feeling very hopeful and joyful about this transition to a new phase of life. I'm sitting in my office where I'm packing up too many books to ship out, so that's something I'm joyful about. And In terms of social media, I'm on Facebook, but i got 5,000 friends, so I can't add any. But uh, <laughs> in any case, I, and I haven't gone to that other type of thing.
1: Do you have a website
2: i don't have a web i think i'm going to develop a website in my retirement but in the meantime just go to amazon.com and look at the as mark said 30 some books said and support me in my
1: retirement there you go <laughs>
0: one author to another i say amen to that brother
1: are you sad at all about leaving santa barbara which for any listener who's never been there it's a beautiful part of the country
2: I'm, it's been very bittersweet. I mean, it is beautiful. We've been here 19 years. We have many dear friends. I love Westmont College. Westmont College has been so supportive of my work over the past 19 years. I taught at Westminster Seminary before that, and during a time period that was also wonderful, working with people like Tim Keller and Harvey Kahn and, and John Frame and many other people. So I've had a blessed career teaching, uh, and I'm um, I'm hopeful as we move into this new stage of life. Thanks for asking.
1: Mark?
0: Yes, this last weekend, my uh, grandson, Jerome, was baptized. That's exciting. And I got to preach the sermon for the morning and then enjoy an afternoon of an open house at my daughter's house. So it was just a great day, great day.
1: They adopted him a year and a half ago? They adopted
0: him a year and a half ago from the Philippines, and his adoption was just made final about a month ago. So now he's a full-fledged member of the family, according to the laws of the United States and and the Philippines. (laughs) We knew he was that already. Thank you very much for the... Glad they caught up with reality. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it was a a joyous day.
1: Where can people read your weekly commentary on the world?
0: Yes, I publish something called The Galley Report that comes out on Fridays. And if you want to read the latest one, you go to christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport, and you can read that there, or you, you can subscribe and get it sent to your email box.
1: So one of the cool things that happens in the summer in Chicago is they have all these outdoor fitness classes. So I went to outdoor yoga last night near Navy Pier, but they also had another outdoor yoga, in another place they had outdoor salsa classes in another place on one night. And that basically is kind of how it goes every single day during the summer. In fact, at Millennium Park, you can take four hours of outdoor exercises from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. Morgan, Morgan,
0: Morgan, Morgan, <laughs> Morgan,
1: Morgan. <laughs> People
0: know from our conversation that we represent a gender difference and an age difference. We also represent a fitness difference. <laughs> Morgan does not need any more fitness classes. I love- Mark Galley <laughs> needs lots of fitness classes. Why are you going to another one?
1: I want to be outside and active. You killed two birds with one stone. All right. All right. Everyone can find me on Twitter at M-A-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you so much, Tremper, for joining us on the show. Thank you so much to our producers, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark. guys do a great job a reminder to everyone who loves the show please support us by ordering a subscription to ct we're at orderct.com slash quick to listen and you can subscribe to us there that is super helpful please also feel free to continue to leave your reviews on apple podcasts that's the best way for you to support us outside of getting a subscription thank you so much and we'll talk to you all next week